probably sometime in 2013 or 2014. I was driving in um, a small white Ford Windstar and <clears throat> it was probably around 3 a.m. I was uh, delivering or helping deliver flowers. I, uh, I had a really incredible, really, uh, I don't know, exalting title. My job title was Lumper. Doesn't that just make you excited to be alive? Like, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a lumper. I was taking my lumps, as they say. And um, what I would do is I would get a call. Uh, I made pretty good money doing it, but I, I got a call, uh, you know, around 2.33 in the morning. I would never, I'd never know when it re- would really come. It was just dependent on when the truck driver who would be driving from Florida, when he would make his way or he'd enter into Dallas, which is where I lived at the time. And when I got that call, I knew it was time for me to go out and find him to help him find his way to the local cooler, the freezer, where we would deliver the flowers and the flowers would sit, um, you know, until time for them to sell. And I remember one distinct memory in that time, and this was true for the entire season, but there was one night I was sitting and, or I was sitting in my car because I would always get there before they got there. Um, either, you know, a lot of times they knew they were going, so I'd meet them first. Sometimes I'd meet them and drive them there. This time, this particular person knew where the cooler was, so I was waiting for them to get there. And so this is downtown Dallas, Texas, okay? This isn't, I don't know, this isn't Wilmore, Kentucky, where it's one of the few places in the world that it's still safe to kind of leave your door unlocked and come home. And it's just, you don't expect much to go down in Wilmore. This is downtown Dallas, 3 a.m. And I'm completely alone in my car. And needless to say, it's a little, you know, it can be a little scary down there, but it also gave me a lot of time to think and pray uh, and connect with the Lord. And I remember during, and I've had several times like this, uh, working jobs that, you know, you, you do because you have to do as a husband, as a man, because you are called first to provide for your family, to, to obey God and do all these things. But like, I am providing for my family. I know that the Lord has something for my life. I know that the Lord has called me into ministry But I also know that there's this place called the valley where David would tend sheep. And in the tending of sheep, he developed a character and an understanding of the nature and identity of God. So that by the time he was raised up into the throne room, he actually had the character to carry the weight of that calling. And I remember being in my car, in my van during this time... Just really the tension between this place where you're, you're in the valley, you have been given promise. You're filled with promise. Um, the verse where Jesus says, unless a seed first goes to the ground and dies. So it's like a seed comes of a prophetic word comes to your life. And you get excited and it's like, oh, I'm going to be a worshiper or something. I don't know. You know, oh, I've got something. The Lord, oh, the Lord is going to give me this job or this experience. And then suddenly it dies. And you're like, 
where are you, God? <laughs> and what happened to the promise? And you know this is all true. Uh, for Israel throughout the, the Old Testament, um, specifically, right, Abraham gets a promise, but then very quickly it all really gets messed up. And, you know, he, he tries to bring the promise about in his own way, according to his own time frame, and, and just things go crazy, right? And I think we've all done that. But I remember specifically in this place, the tension of just desiring God, wanting to, to be in love with God, being in love with God, knowing that there was more for my life than being a lumper, taking lumps, right? But uh, there, so during that time, God had begin, begun to develop um, a particular understanding that I have now that I'm so thankful for because it keeps me through every season. And it's this idea of being a pilgrim, that life, your life, my life, all of life in one sense is a pilgrimage. That uh, Brad mentioned, I believe it was last Sunday, he, would, he talked about the Psalms of Ascents. Those Psalms were when the Israelites, the Jews would go to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. It was a time in their life when they would take a, a dedicated, a special time to go and connect with God in the place of worship. They would leave everything behind, go to Jerusalem, to the holy city, and they would worship God. It was a pilgrimage, okay? But the thing about pilgrimage is it's this journey, and what we experience in life is oftentimes we find our place in pilgrimage, but we end up at the holy place. We find ourselves in the promised land, but then we end up back in this cycle of pilgrimage again. It's like Jesus going into the wilderness. He, he, he comes into the wilderness. He, he goes through this struggle and this battle. He gets anointed and set free. Not that he needed anything to be set free from. He was doing it for us. But then he comes out in power. But here's the thing is like our life is always this like cycle of like wilderness Release, power, pilgrimage, and it happens over and over again. And one thing that can be difficult is if we don't know this, we can become pretty disenfranchised pretty quickly. We can kind of lose focus that the entire goal, the highest aim of your life is not for you to be successful in ministry. It's not for you to... I don't know, of course you know this, to, to have all the, the fame, money, wealth, and all of these things, but the highest goal of your life is to know God, is to know God. One quote says, it's like the highest aim in life is to know God and something like to, be, to find joy in him. I think it might be like a Piper quote. I don't know who said that. Somebody say it. What is it? Who knows? No, but say the quote because I, I know I botched it. The chief end of man is to glorify, that makes me want to cry, to glorify God and to enjoy him. It's so beautiful. But what, what, we've, what we realize is the chief end of God, this is amazing, that God has a purpose, is to transform you into Christ. Isn't that crazy? He is in heaven right now all throughout the earth, in you, in this room right now, thinking about transforming you into the image of his son. And he has set up the world in a way 
that instead of just giving us ease and comfort, he gives us something that none of us really like, unless you have a revelation, would ever consider to be the right way of doing this. But he gives us trials. And in those trials, he calls us to this place of pilgrimage. I remember just feeling so lost for so many years out working the bread route, working the flour route. I used to fertilize lawns in uh, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. I would go up and down 127, bypass 127. It intersected, I think, with bypass 62. And the Lord told me it's Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. He was teaching me, Chuck, it's not about your way. It's, it's my way. He was teaching me about grace and surrender. Isaiah 62 has to do with the house of prayer. Anyways, so I was sitting in my car in Dallas, and the Lord was teaching me about pilgrimage, that all of my life, you find these cycles of pilgrimage. Some days you're up, some days you're down, but what the Lord is doing is he's trying to convince us of his nature and transform us into the image of Christ. That's what his, his chief end is. That's what his goal is to get us into that place. Now, I want to read this verse because there was a song that came to me in that day. It was on an album. I believe it was, uh, I think it was like a 2009 um, International House of Prayer, Kansas City, One Thing Conference like album. And you guys know this. Isn't it amazing how certain songs or things, just art and beauty, just come to you? And like places where you're feeling so numb, so broken, so lost, and then suddenly something beautiful touches you and you're awakened to purpose again. And you can't articulate it. You couldn't put it under a microscope and study it. But it's life and it makes you feel more alive than you've ever felt. And, and not only that, it gives you definition. I remember this song came to me. It's called The Psalm of Abraham. And I want to read the lyrics to you or at least some of them. But before I do that, <clears throat> I want to show you Abraham was on a pilgrimage. Abraham had been caught up in a journey. But here's the thing. It was in a, he was caught up in a journey that he would not fully realize in this life. And how many of you guys know, how many of you guys have heard the terminology, the now and not yet theology? Now and not yet. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. Now and not yet. Okay, I, I sometimes I hate it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because so much of it is true. Like right now, I am in Christ. Jesus, apart from works that I've done, I am in Christ. But I also know right now it's unfolding in my life and he's transforming me into his image. So it's now and it's not yet. I'm in this journey where I have everything I need according to life and godliness. But man, he is working this out. In Philippians, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God in you to do and to will his good pleasure. Man, that's this little dirty word called process. Right? So Abraham is this beautiful patriarch of process. And he's teaching us how to, how to know and love God and have faith 
Not just belief in the existence of God, but loyal, loving allegiance to God. That's a whole nother thing. Just belief, belief can be fickle. Just believing in something can be very fickle. I believe in um, the wind, but I don't put my faith and trust and allegiance in what the wind is and what it does. I don't even really think much about it. But Abraham is a patriarch of promise and process, and he shows us what it means to put our allegiance, our loving, loyal allegiance in God. I'm in the wrong chapter here. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. My own shadow is right on my page. It's hard to see it. All right. So it says in chapter 11, verse 8, by faith, take loyal, loving allegiance. Abraham had put his allegiance into God. It says, by faith, he went to live in the land of of promise, as in a foreign land. Think about this. This is his place. It's a, it's a foreign land. He's disconnected. He's, he's not comfortable. It's not where he's, you know, familiar with. It's a foreign place. He has left his home in search of something. And it's like a foreign land, living in tents. This isn't a comfortable life. He's moving about. He's nomadic. He's constantly been moving looking for something, eyes fixed, looking for something. And how many times do you think maybe he saw what he thought he was looking for? And he said, ah, I think that's it. Only to find out the Lord had moved it again. And it's uh, now I'm going again and I have to follow again because like the um, U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So it says, as in a promised land, living in tents, He's not alone. He's got his sons with him. He's got Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10 tells us what his pilgrimage was about. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. So many times in life, we're looking for a city. We're looking for something. We're on this pilgrimage. We want, we've tasted and seen that God is good, but then life continues to happen. Trials, process, sin, things happen in our life, both within and without. And then suddenly we were back in that place of wilderness and dryness and numbness. And maybe we've, you know, reaching your promise is kind of like the dog who's chasing the car and caught it. Once you catch it, what do you do? I don't know what to do with this thing. (laughs) I didn't think of it. I didn't think this through that far. You read the story of David and you, listen, this is pretty accurate for David's life. You're like, he's put so much investment in getting to the throne. And then once he gets there, it's like, I don't know what to, this, I don't know what to do with it. And then he actually really messes up in a lot of ways. Um, And God, and then he redeems it or he repents and it's beautiful. But that's kind of like what promises is. I think and what I'm trying to say today is I believe there's many of us that have tasted promise. And then we end up in this cycle where we still haven't found what we were looking for. And then we become, the Bible says that hope deferred, I believe that's in Hebrews 10, uh, makes the heart sick. It says hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a promise fulfilled is a tree of life. 
And many of us have been in that place where hope deferred makes us sick, but we don't really understand the context and the story and the timeline of what God is doing in our life to build the anticipation for the promise and the character to, be, to actually be able to hold and walk in it. But I would, I would argue, and I would say this, I've seen many leaders in the body of Christ. I'm thinking right now of several people who in the, even the, the 70s and 80s were very important. They were very um, integral in the, the movement of God during that time. And the Lord raised them up. But guess what? They ended up growing old. And then the Lord began using other people. Uh, one person said, I'm only a starter tree. I'm here to grow to a certain height, but then I must be pruned back so that the younger trees growing underneath me can walk in their calling and grow under, underneath my shade. Now, here's the thing. How many of you guys know you've seen this? You've seen leaders in a pulpit standing in a church 40, 50, 60 years, and they never, I mean, maybe not 60, but they never step down. They never move on. And it's like an old wineskin that never has new wine. And there's something about knowing that this process, this place where, you know, if, you, if you're that leader and everything has come, become about the promise and like walking in that place of ministry and promise, then when it's time to let go of the promise, you won't actually have what it takes to let go of it and die to it. Does this make sense? So what happens is if we don't make it about the promise, but we recognize the process and the cycles, then when I'm no longer in the limelight, and that doesn't necessarily have to be a pulpit. That could just be your workplace or anything, right? Nobody's giving me the accolades I used to get. I'm not receiving the, the pats in the back I used to have. I personally don't feel as anointed in ministry. I look back and I go, man, my life used to be blessed in this way, but now it's, it seems to be kind of on pause. But what happens is if we've made the promise about that, this, my whole life is about re, getting to the car. I don't know what to do with it, getting to the promise. Then once I have the promise, I may have a, an incredible season of life, but once it's time to let go, what do I do then? When David is old, what is his hope in? Is it, is it, is it in the kingdom or is it in the one who brought him to that place to begin with? Are you guys tracking with me? So Abraham was looking for this promise. Yes, that's true. But the true, like the deeper level of promise isn't the promise itself. Of course, it's God. So let me, let me read some of these lyrics. I'm going to back up a second. It says, faith is the assurance, the evidence of things unseen. You reward the one who seeks, who does not see and yet believes. I will not doubt your promises, though many as the stars above, for I am on a pilgrimage. Listen, I'm seeking for the king of love. I walk by faith and not by sight. You give me grace to lift my eyes. I see your face and it gives me life to run the race, to fight the fight, to fight the fight, the fight of faith. And then she just repeats it. So we're on this pilgrimage. God has us in this place where 
He is teaching us in the in-between. I think Sasha's message last week was about the in-between. It's this place where it's in-between. It's the, the peaks and the valleys, you know, promise fulfilled versus promise or promise spoken versus promise fulfilled. And in that place is tension. It's pressure. Sometimes it's numbness, coldness, dryness, and wilderness. And the Lord has designed it all for a purpose. If we don't know why, what can happen is we can be like Israel, and instead of understanding our wilderness and moving through it, we can end up in cycles and repeating it. Does this make sense? All right. So, <clears throat> so uh, Lydia had a dream last night. Can you come up? The microphone's right there on this front pew. Lydia, I did not have a message today. God did not give me a message today. Lydia came up this morning and said, hey, can I share with you guys a dream I had last night? I did not have a message until that moment. And I just, until that moment. I, I, I'm serious. It's so cool. So um, share the message, share the dream, and then I'm going to try to hopefully give some interpretation. Cool. think I'd know how to work a microphone by now. Um, so yeah, yeah uh, last night I had a dream. And you know how sometimes you have a dream and it's so vivid it just really sticks with you. Like you know it's an important dream and not like a weird dream that doesn't mean anything. Um, so last night as, as I was dreaming I dreamt that we as a church, were, we were all in this tiny little trailer, like a trailer park, kind of mobile home. And we were all searching in this mobile home for something. I mean, every nook and cranny, like people were looking under the carpet, like anywhere you can imagine. And the longer that we were looking, the bigger the trailer grew. So, and as we kept looking, and, and some, some of us, we were looking by ourselves, some were in groups. I don't know if that's important, but as I said, the more we kept looking and searching for this thing, the house grew. And towards the end of the dream, we were searching for so long that the house became a mansion. It was huge. It was a huge mansion. And I, I woke up and I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. Because I, in the dream, it was almost like a child's game, but it was so important too. You know, like we were having fun searching, but it was like a matter of destiny, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So yeah, that was my dream. That's wonderful. Yeah. So, I know you're already, like many of you are already, like you, was, don't worry, it's just a $100 microphone, it's all good. <laughs> um, I know like a lot of you are already hearing, like you all are tuned in, you're keyed in prophetically. You know, you can see it there in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 15, there's three story or there's three parables that Jesus tells. It's really all one story, but it's the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep and the lost son. It's all stories where someone loses something and they're looking for it. How many of you guys, I didn't even think about this while I was back in the back preparing. When I say preparing, I mean sweating and praying that God would speak to me. Um, <laughs> um, how many of you guys remember Hook? You remember Hook? You remember Hook? You remember in Hook? So this is so funny because Hook is all about people like who have grown up. Pan has grown up. Okay, he's forgotten what heaven's like. All right. You know, Neverland is heaven. 
Okay, there's many other things you could think about, but that's at least one way to view it. But there's somebody in Hook, um, he was a lost boy. Ah, come on, the lost boys. Come on, we're all searching for something. But there was one particular lost boy who had grown up, Pan has grown up, Robin Williams, praise God. But uh, in the movie, uh, he comes home to Wendy's house. And I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he was another grown-up lost boy. If you remember his name, you can shout it out. But he lost his marbles. (laughs) Toodles! Lost his marbles! So, Toodles lost his marbles. Toodles was looking everywhere for those marbles. Those marbles mattered to him. He understood that he had a value on those things. Now, here's what I'll say. Metaphorically, you know what those marbles represented to him? Now, it doesn't say this, but this is what I believe, is that they had like the essence of Neverland still on them. Toodles has lost his marbles. He's lost his mind. He can't remember what heaven was like. He's lost his faith like a child. He's grown up. He's become numb in adulthood. And he doesn't remember what it's like. And it's almost like if I could just find my marbles, I would remember what Neverland was like again. And I think this is the journey of faith. It's like if we could just find the thing that was lost, right? What did we lose? Somebody, come on. We lost it in a garden. We lost our identity, we lost our purpose, we lost our home, we lost our connection, we lost our hope. Sweet dreams are made of these. (laughs) Who am I to disagree? I've traveled the world in the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. Maybe the Arrhythmics knew what they were talking about. If you've never heard that song. Everybody's looking for something. Now in Luke chapter 15, it's really cool. God's looking for something. And that's, that's a really cool part of the story. And, and I'll get to that in a second. But I think... Going back to my story in the bread truck and have, and this, not in the bread truck, excuse me, in the, in my van in Dallas, Texas, delivering flowers, being a lumper. I was in this place of process and it was a three year wilderness for me where many times, I want to be honest about it because I wasn't like desperate to get out of it. Because I somewhat understood what was going on. Now, I didn't understand what the Lord was trying to teach me through that time. But what he taught me, what I got that night, and I didn't catch it through intellectual ascent. I got it through an encounter with that song, the Psalm of Abraham. And it was, life is a pilgrimage. And that I can't put my faith in the promise alone. I can't put my faith in ministry I can't put my faith in finally being there someday because the there isn't a there on the earth until Christ returns and brings his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Brad spoke, was it 2018? We went through the parables. You remember that? And Brad went through the kingdom is like. It was week after week of going through the parables. The kingdom is like. The kingdom is like. 
And part of those stories is like, the kingdom is like this. It's like exactly what Brad was just describing up here. It's this vapor. It's like I can see it and touch it, but I can't reach it. It's here. It's now, but it's not yet. I can experience it. In some sense, I have fullness in Christ. But in another sense, the room is getting bigger. I'm looking for it, and I thought I had it, but I can't find it. And he's not toying with us. He's not sinister. He's not a six-year-old child staring at bugs he's willing to squash. What he's doing is when he broadens our space, he's increasing in us the desire to seek him. And get, listen to this. Luke 11 says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with your whole heart. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God. Matthew 6.25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, if you'll get sick, what you'll put on. I didn't say that, I added it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow sow nor reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? What's valuable, church? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to uh, to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. My Bible says they don't toil. They, do, they neither toil nor spin. In Genesis, Adam, the curse that fell upon him was toiling by the sweat of his brow, seeing life under the vision of his own works, his own ability, apart from God, this idea of I got to do it all by myself. And here Jesus is saying the flowers don't even do that. And I take care of them. It says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? How many Christmas presents do we have? What shall we wear? He says, for the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. He doesn't say you'll experience it all in this life, but he says, you will have this. You will have it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. Queen. I think that song probably comes directly from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> you know what I mean? Could have been, could have been um, Queen that wrote that or like my six-year-old. You know? So. I want it all. I want it now. 
we're, we're seeking, we're searching for something. You guys know this. You, and I think sometimes as, as believers, we can be Christians for so long that we just consider the world as, you know, the ones who are seeking. They're the lost and, and all this stuff. But um, I think I just want to encourage you this morning, no matter where you're at and your own particular process, some of you, some of you don't even believe you have a purpose. And some of you believe that your purpose is more important, quote unquote, hear me, than it actually is. That was me for a long time. I used to have this kind of grandiose idea about myself. It was really difficult to like walk humbly when you think of yourself so important. (laughs) But then some of us need to like not look at ourselves as so lowly. David said, God, who am I that you're mindful of me? I want to encourage you, no matter how old you are, what your age is. Okay, listen. Because a lot of times we talk about purpose, we talk about destiny. Usually we're thinking about like a specific role or mission that God has sent us to accomplish or fulfill. Let's, Let's take that. Let's couch it. That is secondary. It's important, but it's secondary. Come on, everybody say secondary. Primary, number one mission and call that you have is to know God and to be known by him. You can say that in a myriad of different ways. There's not a person in this room. I don't care what your life looks like, what it's been like, what you know or don't know about who God is. You have a purpose. You have an assignment. That assignment is first to be on this journey, this pilgrimage Wherever you're at in the timeline of that pilgrimage, wherever it's moving, you're on this journey to seek this one and to know him and be loved by him. The the one who is the God of the the king of love. That's what we're doing. Okay? Come on, somebody, like, somebody say amen to that. Because there's something valuable about knowing, like, I might be 63 years old and not know what my next move is. Because my body's getting tired. But I'm not done yet. Megan loves the quote. Megan Easley, she loves the the quote. um, I believe it's Heidi Baker. If you don't quit, you win. The other morning, Asher was struggling at the kitchen table. My oldest son, he's eight. um, He loves to do artwork. And he was struggling... Um, because he can be a bit of a perfectionist. I don't know where he gets that from. Um, and he was struggling because he was doing something new and he wasn't doing it successfully. Um, he wanted what he wanted and he wanted it now and he wanted that art to be perfect. And he was sketching, I believe it was uh, a stegosaurus. And he had a, a sketchbook that had it all mapped out for him, you know, and he's doing it and he's practicing it, but he wasn't just getting it right on and he was getting a little bit upset. And he was crying, and mom and I, we understand that Asher needs encouragement to fail. Not purposely, but to understand that, like, failure isn't the end. Keep going. And I told him about Thomas Edison and how many times he failed before he created the light bulb. And like a good teenage eight-year-old, he said, Dad, you've told me that a hundred times. I'm like, I thought I said it once. I don't even know that story that well, but I'm sure I said it once. Um, so, but he was crying, and he was, in a, he was upset. And I was encouraging him that failure is, is okay so long as you don't quit. And I said to him, son, a champion 
is not a person who never fails. A champion is a person who never quits. And some of you guys are on this journey and you don't feel like David facing Goliath. You feel like a pipsqueak facing like, you know, your afternoon break or something, you know? And I know that this can be me and it is me, just to be honest. I'm not preaching this from like lack of experience. I'm like going through it right now. But the good news is, is that we are champions and we aren't champions because we never lose. We're champions because we never quit. And I would encourage you that that's David's story. David's story is this. If you read through um, 2 Samuel, you get through this place where David has fought Goliath. He's had victories with his mighty men. And it all leads up to this place where when the kings are away and out to war, David stays home. Like, it kind of has this idea of like calling and purpose. And he's like kind of in this place where he's in the kingdom, and that, but he's like losing his zeal. And instead of being out to battle, he seems like he's become numb. And he stays home. He stays back and lets the other men fight his battles. And in that place, he goes out onto his balcony, whatever. And you guys know the story. He looks out and there's a woman and she's bathing. And he sees her. He's tempted by her. And he takes her um, and in essence, you know, has his way with her. And then he uh, conspires this whole story because she gets pregnant. And he conspires this whole story to try to have her husband come back from battle. And then he's going to, you know, um, basically, you know, try to get out of it by, you know, sending him back home to his wife so that he can, you know, um, have relations. And then it's no big deal because they'll just think that it was Uriah. That's the man's name. It was just his son. David, here, it, here he is, the man after God's own heart, just really botching things up, like purposefully, like really thinking it through here. And then that doesn't work. Uriah ends up having more integrity than David does. And he says, no, I'm not going to do this while my, my men are out battling. They're on the front lines. I'm not going to do that. I can't sit at home and rest with my wife. While they're out in a tent dying for their country, I can't do that. He doesn't do it, so David doesn't know what to do. Eventually, the, the child um, comes and, and ends up dying. And Anyways, it's this whole mess. It's this whole, whole huge mess. As you keep reading through the story, eventually you get to the place where David repents. And it's not like, it's not really this like pretty process where God like redeems everything and puts a bow on it. David has to deal with the consequences. The baby actually dies. Um, later on, though, when David does repent, there's this part of the story when he comes back to his concubines. And it's kind of the part of the story that lets you know that David really learned his lesson. And it says he did not go back into them. It was almost like he's like, this is how I got into trouble in the first place. And then the rest of the story begins to be redeemed. David loses his entire kingdom. Absalom uh, kills uh, Amsa. Is it Amsa? Amnon. And anyways, his sons are fighting each other. And all, it's like terrible. The whole kingdom is being jacked up. David has to get out of Dodge. He leaves Jerusalem. And then finally it all gets restored. And through the whole process, David, at the end of this, there's a Psalm of David. Actually, let me turn to it if I can find it real quick. I might not find it because I lost my... My mark here. And then in this Psalm of David, um, yeah, here it is. It says, David's song of deliverance. <laughs> Let's see if I can see this. It says, I called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. 
I'm not going to find it just because it's too difficult to do it on the spot. But he basically says something like, you've known me according to my blamelessness. He's like, what are you talking about, David? You're like anything but blameless. You were guilty. Guilty as charged. Romans 3 verse 10. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of our mouths are like open graves. Ugh, gross. Right? So here's David. He's like, you've known me according to my blamelessness. But he, what he does is he gets a picture that he's walking through this journey. And even though he's mucked it up real bad, when he repented and came to God, God applied his faithfulness to David. And that's what makes David a man after God's own heart. Not because David never failed or that he never lost a battle, but it was because David was a champion who never quit being faithful to God and knowing that God was faithful to him. Are you tracking with me? So David is another person where we see this, you know, whole journey. This, the whole Bible is filled with this, where we're going through this pilgrimage. We're going through a journey. We have ups and downs. We, you know, two steps forward, three steps back. But I just want to encourage you this morning that God has you on the pilgrimage and that the pilgrimage has a purpose. Okay? The pilgrimage has a purpose. And that purpose is to be transformed into the image of Christ. To see him, to know him, and to be loved by him. All right? Um, How are we doing out there? Okay. Let me turn to Luke 15. Do you have your Bibles with you? Can we turn to Luke 15? Everybody is searching for something. You know it, I know it. The thing that we're looking for, and oftentimes as Christians, we can lose track of it because we can get caught up with good things, things that are from God and of God. You and I know both that God, like Canaan, the land of Canaan, that was the promised land. That was a good thing. God wanted them to enter that land, to possess the land and take the land. That was important to God's heart. But in the middle of all of this, there's story after story of where God was constantly telling them, you lost track, you lost focus of the main thing, which was actually your connection with me through this entire journey and process. And this is the story of Israel. I'd rather have connection with you. I'd rather destroy this temple. If you think that the whole purpose is what's going on in this temple, the whole, the whole religious activity, I'd rather get rid of sm- smash that and know that I have your heart authentically through the journey than you just be spinning your wheels day in and day out. There's several things. Let me actually back up. I'll back up right real quick to um, Luke 14, 25. Brad, Brad taught on this several weeks back. It was really powerful. He called it the cost of discipleship. I'm sure, I think it's on the website. So 
so much of what we're going through in the process, so much of what is happening in our lives in the in-between place, it's the cost. You're experiencing the cost of your calling, not, again, not necessarily your calling into the mission, but your calling into following Jesus. Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and turned and said to him, and he turned and said to them, excuse me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, whoa. Jesus is using hyperbolic language here. He's using, he's using extreme language to make a point. He's not saying, you know, he's not saying break the first commandment. You know, honor your father and mother. Your days will live, be long with you. He's not saying that. What he's, the same thing as he wasn't saying to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. Right? He's using hyperbolic language. It's a rhetorical device to make a point. He says, if anyone does not hate his own father and mother and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life. He's saying you got to get first things first and find what's valuable. Whoever does not bear his own cross, he says, actually, wait, let me back up. He says, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever not, does not bear his own cross and come after me, we have to be seeking him, cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, and all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I, I know that there's story after story coming out today of Christian believers. You see it a lot in like the, the Christian music and worship area of these people who began to run the race. But doesn't this describe very well? It says, they were not able to finish. Because they didn't count the cost. Almost time after time, if I've watched some of these stories and listened to some of the interviews, the, the hurdles, the things that trip them up in the place of their process, oftentimes it's because they've had li the limelight. They've had life in the limelight. And then when their entire life, they, the buzz of being famous and popular wore off. Or they saw something tragic that they didn't understand they stopped running the race. They lost heart and lost faith and they gave up. They hadn't actually counted the cost to its fullest degree. And they didn't, like Hebrews says, hold fast till the end. God did not save you to say one time a sinner's prayer and say, I'm good. That's it. I'm wrapped up. This thing is done. He saved you to count the cost and hold fast to the end. So he goes on, he says, what king going out to encounter another king in war will sit down first, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him or with 20,000? What does he need to do? What does he need to prepare for? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The question is, what are our terms of peace? A lot of times 
in this place of process, a lot of what's actually transpiring between us, what God's trying to form us in our image is that we're holding on to things that we aren't able to let go of yet. Sometimes it's a victory in the past. It's not always negative things. Sometimes it's positive things. Paul says, this thing I do, I press on to the mark of the high calling. I let go of things that are behind. I, I consider those things to be rubbish, even good things. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't asking us to, to give him part of us. The process that he has is going through your life, the ups, the downs. It is his way of constantly getting you to this place of the cross, where the cross is a place of surrender. Jesus said, greater love knows no man than this, than to lay one's life down for his friends. If you are a believer, you are one who is laying your life down for your friend called Jesus. And we don't get to hold on, not even one shred of that old life. We don't have a small part of us who used to be that we get to continue to hold on to. We're crucified to Christ. It's no longer I who live, Galatians 2.20, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I don't live of my own accord. I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. Jesus says, In verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has an ear, let him hear. You guys know the story of um, Lot and his wife. And Lot's wife turns back to Gomorrah. And she's turned into this pillar of salt. She looks back on what she once had. Israel, they look back. I read the story this morning. It's Numbers 20. Uh, me and the boys were reading it. Israel is challenging Moses. They're, they're upset in the wilderness because their process is difficult. Jesus promised us in uh, John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, take courage. I have overcome the world. Israel was experiencing difficulty. They said, I'd rather go back to Egypt. And instead of actually following God and obeying his leadership through Moses, they wanted to renounce Moses, build up their own leadership. And what ends up happening is they get exactly what they wanted. They transfer leadership and fiery serpents come into their uh, camp. They went from being under the leadership of Yahweh to turning back to the serpent from the garden. And now they're being bitten of their own accord and God allowed it. He sent them. Um, They're, 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 they're dealing, they're, they're, they're eating the, the fruit of their own sin because they hadn't counted the cost. They turned back. And what happens is that salt is no good. It it doesn't actually do what it's meant to do. It doesn't preserve anything. And the Lord wants you to know that in the season of process, he's releasing. He wants to release to you the ability to hold fast and preserve all the way to the end. Okay?
Can we all stand? Romans 5. I want to encourage you that the Lord knows where you are. He sees you. Your process is not unique, meaning the trials and struggles that you're going through, you're not a victim. You're going through, the Bible says that Jesus, he was a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. Now, he, he knows what you, you're going through. He's felt what you felt. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't value in what you're going through. It doesn't mean that you're not, uh, that you shouldn't be validated in the pain and the difficulty of those processes and the difficulty of not knowing where you're going and how to get there. But also there's nothing good about thinking that you're the only one. There's nothing good about thinking that, man, this is unique to me. If other people just knew the difficulty of my struggle or my trial, all that kind of thinking does is keep you stuck and it doesn't give you any ability to move forward. The Lord wants to shake us out of that by giving us perspective in the process and creating in us a persevering spirit. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's so good. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is this city. I want to assure you, your life is not about just getting to the end of your race. Your life is about living it, knowing with faithful expectation that a city is coming whose builder and maker is God. And you play a part. No matter what part you think that is, no matter how small or great, you play a part in seeing that, holding fast to the end, and watching it manifest in the earth. The glory of God. We hope. Romans 13 says, the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love. How many of you guys have made a withdrawal of hope lately? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice also in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope, some versions say, does not disappoint. Mine says, hope does not put us to shame. This is so good because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that also, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Jesus in in Luke 15, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Worship team, you can come on forward. Jesus in Luke 15 is encountering in the three stories, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Jesus is encountering um, some people who don't have their value system correct. They do not understand that mercy triumphs over judgment. They do not understand that it is better for a repentant sinner to come into the kingdom of God than it is to remain in your own uh, consecration or your own set-apartness. See, they believed that because they were called to holiness and consecration, that what that meant was they couldn't be, and, and this is true, but they were just doing it in the wrong way. They couldn't be around certain types of people because they would defile them rather than recognizing that through the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is like a seed that spreads out and takes over, so I'm more contagious to the world than the world is contagious to me. I'm in the wrong chapter. I'm in Acts. I took all my... uh, ribbons out. Now I don't know where I'm at. All right, here we go. Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners, come on. (laughs) I don't have a lot of mercy for tax collectors, (laughs) y'all. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. There's a lot in that statement. You remember when, um, when the disciples that they were like, Hey, these guys are casting out demons. And you're like, what should we do with them? And Jesus is like, someone I heard once say this, demons out, good. Demons in, bad. Leave them alone. <laughs> you know? So here we are. And he's like, they're coming to hear from me. What's your beef? Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, ugh, listen to this. This is what you're supposed to hear here is they're just like Israel in the wilderness. Do you have ears to hear? Listen. Now the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled. Isn't that what Israel did in the wilderness? Something so simple, but it says so much. God, I don't really believe in your leadership. Then it was Moses, now it's Jesus. They grumbled saying, this man receives sinners to eat with him. They're accusing him of not being holy, not being consecrated, not being set apart. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99? Jesus is searching for something. Do you not go after it, the one you, he's, do not go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Some of you feel lost in your process. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people. Remember, he's using hyperbolic language. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He is not saying, hey, I know you guys are righteous. He's saying you think you're righteous. But there'll be more rejoicing over those who know their sin, over those who think they're righteous and are too proud to humble themselves. There will be more joy. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He goes, or what about a woman who, was, uh, who had si- uh, 10 silver coins? She, she loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seeks diligently? Like, I don't think this woman was just like lighting a lamp and like sweeping the house. I think she was like a mad woman looking for what she lost, an entire day's wage. How many of us have lost that? I'm speaking to myself. I want this back. And I know what happens is when we're in the process, many of us have been so hungry for God, we've swept the house clean. We said, Lord, I'll get right with you. I know that I used to live this way. And I'll, listen, I'll, whatever it is, I'll stop doing that if you just save me, if you just take my life and make it yours. This woman, she's lit the lamp. She swept the house clean. She's seeking diligently until she finds it. And when she finds the thing she's looking for, she calls together her friends and neighbors. She's not lighting her lamp and putting it under her bushel, saying, rejoice with me because I found what I'm looking for, my coin that was lost. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I won't read the next story because it's a little longer. I'll paraphrase. You know the story, a father, a son who wishes his father to be dead. He asks for his inheritance. That basically means I want your money, but not you. The father gives him what he asks for. And then the son receives the consequences and he ends up in a pig pen. He ends up saying, isn't it better um, for me to be back at my father's house and be a slave? Because even the slaves in my father's house receive are doing better than I'm doing now. So he goes back and says, he finally comes to his, his senses. He's looking for something. In this story, he's looking for forgiveness. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. He's in the wilderness starving. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned. I love this. He's, he's confessing his sin. He says, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. 
let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You guys know the rest of the story, the older brother. We're all in a place where the Lord is trying to convince us of who he is, transform us into the image of his son, and he leads us in a pilgrimage. And sometimes it feels confusing. Sometimes it feels um, like it's never gonna end. But I believe if we take and have eyes to see like Abraham, if we become like our forefather, the patriarch of promise, and we say, I am looking for a city. If I, if I, tra- if I trade my desires, if I trade what I want, Jesus said, whoever seeks first the kingdom, everything else will be added. So what that means is I don't, I don't go after what I want to go after anymore. My life is dedicated to one thing. And that's what Abraham was doing. That's what Paul was doing. He was convinced of one thing. And I believe that if we are in that place of process, which we all are, if we trade, like Christ said, if we lay down our life, anyone who tries to save his life will lose it. But if anyone loses their life for my sake, they will find it. I think what will happen is that we'll finally find what we were looking for. We will see a glimmer. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love. It's like we see through this glass darkly. It's, it's hazy, but we know it's there. We can, we can taste it, but we can't quite grasp it. But we see it in the Lord. What he does is in his goodness, he causes us that taste, that little bit of taste causes us to long for more. And that longing, even though the house is growing like in Lydia's dream, it causes, it gives us endurance and perseverance to continue the search, to continue going after him. It's his mercy, it's his kindness and his goodness to give you your process. And I wanna say your process is important. It's powerful, but it's also not about you. What is he doing through you? to transform you into the image of his son. Father, we just thank you that you didn't die on the cross. Your son didn't die on the cross just to um, give us comfortable lives. Sasha spoke, Lord, on the in-between last week and this place of laying our life down. God, you know our wildernesses. These things are not unique to you. You know the beginning and the end. Jesus, you you were tempted in everything and yet you did not sin. You, you went through your wilderness and you overcame and you are causing us to become overcomers. So Lord, I just pray, Lord, that like 
Romans 5 says, God, that, that even though we face suffering, God, that it would produce endurance. That ultimately, Father, that that endurance would produce uh, character and character would produce um, perseverance and that perseverance would produce hope. That, Lord, you would give us a vision that while we're in our pilgrimage, while we're in the in-between, that it would give us, Lord, the grace to taste just a little bit of the sweetness of your goodness and that that would cause longing to grow in our hearts not just to not just to find our calling or our purpose or our thing something that can be so self-centered but Lord to be satisfied the chief aim of our life is to know you and enjoy you to experience the goodness of your blessedness, your presence in us and with us. And then Lord, through all of that, let everything manifest, let everything else. If we seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will be added. Ministry, jobs, through the ups and downs. Lord, help us get first things first. You said, The first commandment is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we just want to follow you and love you this morning. Jesus, we repent this morning of grumbling in our process. We repent, Lord, of um, accusing you of being absent in the process. We repent, Lord, of blaming you and not understanding, Lord. We just ask that Jesus, that you would, rather, Lord, we we surrender our need to know. Just like Abraham going up, Lord, with Isaac, his need to know, Lord, what are you gonna do, Jesus, with the promise? You told me you were gonna give me a son. You told me you were gonna do this. And it seems so confusing. Seems like you're going back on what you said. And sometimes, Lord, we just get stuck in the place of our need to know and we don't move and we don't surrender. Father, we just surrender right now our need to know. We choose faith. Lord Jesus, I just ask you that this week you would encounter your beloved church, that you would come to each of us, that you would meet with us face to face like you meet with a friend, that you'd touch us right in the place of our pain, right in the place of the delayed, the hope deferred, right in the place of our sick hearts where hope has been deferred. And Jesus, you would remind us of this tree of life promise fulfilled that Jesus really ultimately you are the promise above every promise and that our relationship with you is more important than any other secondary calling God we love you we thank you